1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and
1: Bloomberg experts, along with essential market moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I tell you the big take story today is awesome. I used to work at Credit Suisse, so I had an interest in it. Um, and the story is just fascinating. Um, you think about these Russian billionaire oligarchs and their super yachts and owning, you know, football clubs in London and so on and so forth. There's got to be some bankers to those folks, and sure enough, Credit Swiss found a. Can you nice believe they're in niche. Switzerland? Can those you bankers. Believe? What a Can shock! Marion Hofdemeier, also in Switzerland, she's a finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Brings us this story. Marion, talk to us about Credit Swiss and the business it had built. Uh, has built in Russia and kind of where we are today with the sanctions and so on.
3: Yeah, sure. So Credit Suisse actually is one of the earliest banks to have a big presence in Russia. They they came in post, you know, Soviet Soviet Union um and they really started to connect with a lot of these individuals who were gaining um access to privatization and, and gaining wealth from that and so you know a lot of the money started to pour in and then the first place you think of when you're looking for swiss private banking or for private banking is switzerland it's it's got an expertise in it so you know you end up having this this man babak Malci, who was in a position to really receive these individuals who needed you know, advice on how to buy companies, where to invest their money, uh, you know, how to how to structure different uh, transactions they were trying to do. And so that's where Credit Suisse really played a niche. And of course, other banks have also been uh, present in this space, but Credit Suisse seems to have a little bit more um, exposure and, and connection to the space.
2: Marion, I once heard a story, and I don't know if it's true, so you can correct me if I'm off base, but I want to just share it to illustrate um, uh, the perception of Swiss bankers. In the Second World War, the Nazis were killing Jews and taking the gold from their teeth and storing it in Swiss banks. And these bankers knew what they were taking, right? There's this perception that the Swiss are willing to be bankers to the most evil people on the planet. Um, Is (laughs) that—
3: That is that is a perception. Um, it, it's a perception that stems from some truth, obviously, but but it's it's not that they're choosing to bank with the you know the most you know, horrible people of the world. It's just Swiss banking has traditionally um, welcomed money um, and hasn't asked as many questions as, they, as other jurisdictions have, and they've they've been really entrenched in this idea of banking secrecy um, to protect wealth and you know. With that, you bring that example up, they were they were actually also protecting many Jewish families' wealth, um avoiding avoiding that wealth from being taken by the Nazis. So there's both sides to it. Um and so there have been, you know long debates in court cases around this. Um, but it, it is difficult. It is a difficult area to operate in now of course we have the fall of banking secrecy so there's a lot of accordance with other countries and tax you know agreements and so there's a lot less secrecy around it than historically has been
2: well and there must be some reputational um concern on uh the executive level right they don't want to be seen as uh the banker to kim jong-un they don't want to be seen as the banker to vladimir putin do
3: they no, no, I mean, definitely not. And and banks in general, I mean, especially Swiss banks, but other banks as well, have, have in recent years with KYC, anti-money laundering, you know, the extra restrictions that are being put in place um, have avoided some of these individuals, these politically exposed individuals, because precisely, you know, if the person the person could be fine for now, but who knows, you know, in a couple of years from now, what that person might get involved with that might taint, you know, the bank and then Alienate their other clients who don't want to be associated with a bank who, you know, is banking people you don't want to be associated with. So it, it, it's a difficult line to walk. But at one point, I mean, a lot of these clients were not sanctioned; they were just regular businessmen. Mm-hmm. Yes, they made their money in the post-Putin, post-Soviet era um, privatization process, but they were, you know, not untouchable. These were regular clients, and now they'd be become untouchable. So it's a, with many banks, it's a, it's a problem about. Assessing, you know, what, what level of risk, what level of probability are these clients going to be untouchable?
1: You know, the, your reporting uh, is just rich in detail here. I really love your uh, news item here that you and Hugo Miller, your colleague, uh, put together. The numbers are just amazing. At one point, Credit Suisse managed more than $60 billion belonging to rich Russians. And that brought in to Credit Suisse 500 to $600 million in revenue per year. What's happened to that business with all these sanctions here?
3: this business is gone. It's dead. It's dead. And, yeah. and and those aren't necessarily my words. Those are the words of the bank. Um, you know, it started in 2014 when you had, you know, the annexation of Crimea and some sanctions came out um, that, you know, it started to show the bank, you know, this might not be an area of growth for us anymore. Um, but that was sort of a limited uh, downfall, so to speak, or, or decrease in revenues. Now we've really seen basically businesses. is. It's all, there's nothing left. All they're doing is basically managing money that's in frozen accounts. But they can't do deals anymore. They can't transact. They can't trade for their clients. And that's really where they're making the most bank for their buck.
2: Yeah, there's a, you have a quote from Gottstein in here, the CEO, saying you basically can't touch them. We don't have any business with Russian clients at all.
1: It's interesting. So, yeah, and you have a, some great photos in your uh, 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 in story as well, in terms of uh, Alisher Usumov's super yacht named Dilbar. It's undercovers at the Blom and Voss dockyard in Hamburg in March. And so it seems like everybody's trying to get their hands on those uh, Russian. Oligarch's yachts. I don't think the it's world. an exercise in excess though. I mean you have to have at least two helicopters sure. on your yacht, don't Absolutely. you? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, no question. All right, Marion, thank you so much for that. Marion Hoftermeier, finance reporter for Bloomberg News. She is based in Switzerland. That's a great thing about Bloomberg News. We got people all over the place. If there's news anywhere on this planet, we're gonna find it. Let's get right to our next guest, Kevin Nicholson, Global Fixed Income, co-CIO, co-head of investment committee at Riverfront Investment uh, Group. Kevin, I look at the corporate bond total return index year to date down 13%. What happened?
5: Well, it's been a year ahead. Everything has gone down. I mean, you look at the Treasury market, uh, Treasuries, you know, 10-year Treasuries up 125 basis points from where it started the year. And, uh, you know, corporate spreads have widened. And so that's why, why you've seen these negative returns uh, in the fixed income market. And, uh, you know, corporations are, are not uh, – you know, are not immune um, from the fallout. And so, uh, you know, you're going to continue to see uh, yields rise, in my opinion, across the board as the Fed uh, continues its uh, tightening cycle.
2: Um, But if we uh, expect the Fed to go to three, um, they're almost there. Doesn't it become priced in at some point? I mean, uh, don't you start buying bonds for the yield?
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, bonds are attractive at this point uh, in the cycle. Uh, You know, one of the things that I've been kind of preaching to our clients is that, you know, you've taken the long term or excuse me, the short term pain uh, to get the long term gain. Uh, You know, when you're purchasing bonds, obviously the starting yield that you purchase them. Uh, is going to most likely be your return. Um, and so you want to make sure that, you know, at these current yields, you're going to actually uh, have some room for yields to go higher without a price depreciation overwhelming the annual income generation. And so that's why we are focused at the front end of the curve because you're getting more yield per unit of duration. And so that allows you to have a, a larger cushion for if yields rise that you're not going to have uh, that depreciation overwhelm that income whereas if you go to the long end of the curve you're not getting paid for that extra duration and uh, you have a lot less uh, cushion you know, about half as much
1: Kevin how concerned are you and, and your team there Riverfront about this Federal Reserve and its ability to I don't know, engineer kind of a soft landing vis-a-vis rising interest rates and having that policy risk maybe going too far too fast and pushing us into a recession how do you guys think about that
5: Well, you know, about a couple weeks ago, we went through the exercise because we looked at the Fed's um, target for the end of the year of core PCA of 4.1%. And we were like, how do we get there uh, by year end um, and have a soft landing, so to speak? Um, And over the last 12 months, core PCA has averaged about uh, um, 42 basis points per month. And so, therefore, in order for the Fed to hit their rate target um, by the end of the year, that means that core PCE must um, PCE must average about 33 basis points. So you're going to have per month. So you're going to have a huge slowdown. We don't see uh, inflation cooling that fast. And so, therefore, we continue to believe that you know yields are going to be materially higher by the end of the year and so that's why we maintain um that you know to have a shorter duration and we don't think that the fed is going to have a soft landing we think that they're going to over tighten and um, push us into recession ultimately and
2: uh do do they then turn around and cut i mean i know now we're going pretty far out and it's hard enough to forecast you know the next 12 months but do you expect the Fed to uh, try and fix a mistake?
6: Well, I think the
5: big thing here is that the Fed wants to get rates normalized um so that if they do over uh, if they over tighten, they have the ability to have some room to be able to lower rates. Um, you know, but at current you know at current levels, even if we were to, if they were to stop, let's just say here or you know a rate or two, uh, hikes more, um, it's not going to be enough to give them dry powder going forward. So I think that the, if they do over-tighten uh, the economy, um, they, will, uh, they will make sure that, A, that inflation is under wraps. At this point, I think inflation is the most important thing for them to fight. And so for the Fed, if they send us in an a recession and inflation is still high, then I, I don't think that they're going to stop there. Um, you know, because the Fed put is gone, and so now it's really about trying to get inflation under control.
1: Where, if you, where are you putting? You're
2: off. You're off.
1: Where are you putting money to work, Kevin? Given your backdrop, which is pretty darn dim, I would say. <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of <laughs> a, a dark outlook.
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's only dark in the in the short term, to be quite honest. I mean, we're looking at opportunities, and you know, and from a fixed income standpoint, uh, we're still looking at bank loans and uh, and uh, high yield. Uh, in the equity markets, uh, we are wanting to get paid to wait, so we're looking um, for dividend paying stocks. We're looking at uh, covered call strategies, um, oh, and, and you Combine that with uh, our high-yield uh, and bank loan approach. That's the idea of, you know, getting paid the weight. And so we think that we're going to, you know, we're going to be okay. Uh, it's just that the markets, as we all talk about all the time, hate uncertainty. And right now we're in an uncertain time. And it just, I just feel like markets are going to be range-bound. I'm not saying that it's Armageddon. I don't yep. believe that. Um, I think that, you know, <clears throat> If we go into recession, it's not going to be until late 23 into 24. So we have some time on our side. It's just a matter of being selective.
1: All right, Kevin, good, good stuff. We appreciate getting your thoughts and your perspective there. Kevin Nicholson, he's a global fixed income co-CIO and co-head of investment committee at Riverfront Investment Group in the lovely city of Richmond, Virginia, where I spent a lot of time back in the day. All right, for my good friend Rennie and I, we look at the summer as the Triple Crown. And this weekend is the first leg of the Triple Crown, Memorial Day. Then, of course, you've got July 4th and then Labor Day. So when we get to the first leg of the yeah. Triple Crown, you start thinking about seafood and lobster. Mark morell he does he does this lobster thing full-time. He's a founder and CEO of Get Maine Lobster. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. A lot of folks are starting to think more and more about getting those uh, fresh lobsters. Talk to us about... The lobster market today. I mean, we see inflation everywhere we turn. How is it with the lobster yeah. guys?
6: Yeah, it's insane, right? Because fuel, bait, labor, you know, everything is up. So the lobster men are feeling it. The wharf owners are feeling it. The processors, my company. So, because then you have to calculate what will the market bear, And uh, the market understands what's going on. So they know they're paying a little bit more and the die-hard lobster lovers, um, you know, are still buying. So it's, it's an interesting time for sure.
2: Yeah. I was wondering about the demand. I mean, for me also the summer is marked in July and August by the lobster party, by the place I go, the beach place yeah. I go in the summer, we have the lobster party uh, yep. one each month. And it's like the party to go to. Um, but as we're all sort of, Tightening our belts here because of six dollar a gallon gas and, you know, um groceries that are all of a sudden costing twenty to twenty-five percent of our paychecks rather than ten to fifteen. Do we still reach for the
6: lobster? Demand has not waned as much as I thought it would. Uh really interesting. And um I mean, one of the things, lobster is very celebratory, so not something people eat every day but if they want uh, a special event to be that much more special then lobster is the go-to
2: by the way is lobster still the best i mean i think of main lobster yep. as the pinnacle right caught in some freezing cold <laughs> waters by a guy mm-hmm. with a sick accent and a <laughs> sweet trawler like but um is it still the only way are there lobster farms are there genetically engineered lobsters what's the story
6: Yeah, I think lab lobsters are in the future. I haven't heard of anything now. Here in Maine, the only thing I sell is wild caught by hand uh, by an individual, typically generational lobster man or woman. So it's pretty cool. Uh, Big heritage here, and the process really hasn't changed much. Talk to us, I mean, how have the the
1: lobster people in Maine and, and New England, how have they fared over the past few years with the pandemic? How's their business changed? How have they evolved? Because, you know, whenever we talk to people that are in different parts of the economy, I always like to get a sense of kind of how their life, how their business has changed.
6: Yeah, it was different for everyone. Uh, during the pandemic, and a lot of people don't understand in the lobster industry itself, when the shutdown occurred— you got rid of casinos, cruise ships, and a bunch of restaurants. Yep, those are big, big suppliers of lobster that people don't realize. So, when you have large purveyors that have tanks and freezers filled with lobster and nowhere for it to go, they rely on businesses like mine, uh, where our online direct consumer we ship the product. So, um, <clears throat> it was really interesting typically the price goes up and down throughout the year, depending upon supply and demand, but demand was super duper high and supply was super duper high. Uh, and then supply started to get low. (laughs) Um, and we had an entire year of not much price change. Um, and then suddenly I've never seen lobster prices as high as they got recently. It was, it was wild. And, uh, cause demand was still really high, but supply was low because mm-hmm. of the uncertainty.
1: What, what is the supply? Know? Like, you know, is it a, what is the supply of lo- lo- lobsters, you know, natural lobsters? Is it, is it on the rebound? Is it good? Is it
6: endangered? Um, no. So Maine, uh, super sustainable and, uh, by design by the lobster men and women themselves. So we're never going to have any supply issues good. from what is in the ocean, um, So that's great news. Um, You know, other markets I'm not overly uh, privy to. I don't study the Canadian, although sometimes I have to buy Canadian, but I don't, you know, study elsewhere. But we don't catch anything below a pound and nothing above four pounds so that we can let them grow. And then the big ones, you know, we want to keep them around because they're, you know, they're breathing. I will point out there have been, you know, during the
2: lockdown – Maine started selling recreational weed. I don't know if that has anything to do with the demand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that influences wow. the demand picture or Let's slows do down supply a little bit. But um, yeah. but you're moving into a new era. And I mean, like you said, everything's still done traditionally in sustainable ways, and it's an incredible heritage. But now you're selling an NFT? What's, what's that all yeah. about? What it's you got to tell us right? about it.
6: It's crazy. So um, back in November... Um, I discovered a beautiful one in one hundred million rare lobster that uh, a lobsterman I work with, Billy Coppersmith, harvested. And we have a relationship where I acquire one hundred percent of his catch. So um, it was a, her name is Hattie. She's cotton colored, cotton candy colored lobsters. So she's like blues and pinks. If you Google her, Hattie. The cotton candy lobster i'm on it right now. i'm on it right now <laughs> yeah i mean she, mother nature created something epic um so i was inspired by her and i wanted to do some cool projects uh one was uh, i created a ipa with shipyard called hattie's hoppy ipa um and then the nft project which i'm super pumped about is hattie's bay club and so it's this web two we're a web two business jumping into web three And we're bringing what is called in real life utility to the Web3 world. Typically, an NFT gives you access to an exclusive group of people. It may give you, if you stake it, it may give you earn down the road. For us, we want to use lobster in the Web3 world and say, hey, you get this NFT and we're doing monthly giveaways. We're giving 10% back to marine conservation. Those that collect and hold Rare NFTs get access to potentially lobster for a year, and uh, just a bunch of fun, uh, fun things. And uh, we're actually launching a merchandise website called BeeHatty.com, and 50% of the profits are going to token holders. So if but, you hold an NFT, you're going to get 50% of the profits on this apparel website that is inspired by. Hattie.
2: By the way, I'm looking so, at pictures of this lobster. Amazing. And- She is amazing. One in a hundred million chances of finding. Is she still alive? Is Hattie still alive?
6: Yeah. Yeah. She's at the Seacoast Science Center in Rye, New Hampshire. Perfect. She's alive and well.
1: All right, Mark. Awesome, awesome stuff. Best of luck to you and to Hattie. Mark Morrell, founder and CEO of Get Maine Lobster.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code radio20 at bloomberglive.com slash greenfestival.
1: All right, let's talk real estate because I pegged the peak of real estate when Matt bought his home. Uh, I'm going to call that the peak. We got interest rates rising here so I'm just wondering what the impact is on not just residential, but commercial real estate as well. Hesam Naji, president and CEO of Marcus and Millichap, joins us. Hesam, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. Has real estate peaked here? I mean, it's been such a great asset class during the pandemic, but has it peaked?
7: Good morning. Thanks for having me on the program. The market is definitely going through a transition. When you have interest rates at zero and now having to move up to what is really considered normal interest rates, uh, three-year on the 10-year Treasury yield, or even, frankly, 35 or 4% yield on the 10-year Treasury, is not high interest rates uh, by historical standards. But when you're going from zero and going rapidly, because the Fed now has to react to the inflation threat, or the inflation reality, I should say, it is causing a market transition, especially on the for-sale housing side of the equation. Yeah. prices were up. So much since the, uh, the prior to the pandemic, and now you have higher interest rates moving people into apartment rentals. On the commercial side, the lack of overbuilding and really strong fundamentals prior to the pandemic and still today is really the safety net on top of rent growth. Mm. Rent growth for commercial real estate is coming back extremely strongly, and that's why commercial real estate is an inflation hedge.
2: Well, Hassam, uh, we have a uh, columnist here, Cameron Kreis, who wrote a piece today about housing, the housing market saying that's not pretty, but it isn't 2006. This isn't uh, going to be a repeat of the bubble burst that caused the great financial recession because, a great financial crisis, because um, you don't have the rising supply that you did. We've seen these incredible uh, price increases. And in, in fact, if you look at the average median, you know on the residential side, the average median home, um, the mortgage payment has gone up more than fifty percent. Um, but you, you don't have the overproduction that you had back then. And I wonder if it's the same on the commercial side.
7: That's exactly right. And uh, on top of the lack of overbuilding for all real estate, now housing and commercial, You also had uh, lenders that stayed very disciplined during this last cycle, unlike 05, 06, 07, where there was so much leverage in the system, underwriting standards had loosened so much, and there was a lot of non-performing loans when the 08, 09 recession hit. That is extremely different from what we're experiencing now as lenders did stay disciplined. We don't have a sick banking system. We don't have a bunch of loans about to go into default. And so all of that provides really good uh, sort of a safety net on valuations. But prices are adjusting. Obviously, when interest rates go from, you know, three, three and a half percent on your average apartment loan to four and a half percent, you know, in a matter of a few months, that's going to uh, create some pricing pressure. Uh, same with office buildings who are suffering even more because the demand side on office is much more questionable than apartments, self-storage units, even retail, that is now seeing kind of a revolution of the use of brick-and-mortar retail, uh, creating a lot of investment opportunity. So I think fundamentals are going to uh, prevent a wholesale price correction, but we're seeing pockets where a lot of appreciation has led to record pricing. Those are adjusting a little bit. And I'll say it again, rent growth is the key. Apartment rents nationwide uh, for the first quarter of this year we're up more than seventeen percent year over year. And people have nowhere else to live. So that rank growth is going to continue at a healthy pace. Maybe not quite as uh, as hot as it's been, but definitely in the double digit range.
6: yeah.
1: Hassam, talk to us about supply of residential housing. I you know, I think one of the themes that I'd picked up over the last several years, if not longer, was when the builders build stuff they're building the McMansions the stuff where they got a really nice profit margin and not necessarily building the entry level home and that's part of the big problem we're seeing in in rents for example is that changing at all are builders trying to cater to some of the entry level
7: the design has really changed in the last 10 years from mega mansions to more of the median affordable, you know, three- to four-bedroom homes that uh, that families can actually afford. The change, though, is the fact that land prices have skyrocketed, supply material costs have gone way up, and, and labor costs have gone way up. Right. So it's become a lot harder to build. It's become a lot more expensive to build. And we're also seeing a new phenomenon of institutional capital coming into the built-for-rent Single family market where a lot of the inventory that's being built is being built to be rented, not to be sold. Uh, so if you look at the various trends affecting for sale housing, that's a pretty important one, in, uh, which has really evolved over the last five years.
2: What do you expect from the Fed here, Sam? I mean, um, you know, a huge portion of the price increase, I think uh, Cameron Kreis wrote earlier that you know, 70% of the increase in monthly payments over the last year has come from the Fed's efforts to curb inflation. So does that continue, and do we see mortgage rates continuing to rise, and does it affect commercial as well?
7: Yeah, I think the Fed is going to have to stay aggressive. They can't back off now. Uh, I don't think they're going to have to go overboard, but uh, the remainder of this year, I believe, will bring significant successive interest rate increases uh, and it, it is to be expected. The inflation phenomenon is something that was not predicted, and it's really a, a function of recovering from this terrible pandemic and the liquidity that was uh, pumped into the system. You could argue that they overdid it, but uh, better to have overdone it than undershot yep. and uh, have us be in a deflationary environment, which, as you know, is much harder to, to fight. I think interest rates are going to be on the rise, but I, unlike many, I don't expect it to get out of hand. Yep. I think the market can absorb another 50 to 75 basis points to 3.5% right. on the 10-year, and we'll be fine.
1: All right, Hassam, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hassam Naji, president and CEO of Marcus & Millichap, getting a latest on real estate. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at
2: Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller.
1: I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.